I want to start today with a deceptively simple question. Who is the greatest artist of all time? Regardless of discipline, regardless of genre, when I say the greatest artist ever, who comes to mind? Obviously, there's no right or wrong answer here. It's a deeply personal question. Perhaps some big names come to your head, like Da Vinci or Mozart or Shakespeare. Maybe someone more recent, someone more personal to you. Doesn't matter. Now, regardless of who you're thinking of, I want you to ask yourself, what makes them great? Not such an easy question. You know, trying to sound smart, I would probably say something like, well, you know, a great artist is defined by their ability to innovate and push a medium forward. Their career must be marked by longevity and consistency of excellent work, and they should make an impact both during their lifetime and leave a legacy on both the art form and the culture at large. Perhaps you might also want to add that he or she should be a good person, whatever that means to you. Now, the problem with all these qualifications is that they put the responsibility of greatness on the individual. And I'm just not sure that's how history works. The podfather of history podcasts, Dan Carlin, talks about this all the time. The great man theory of history or the trends and forces theory of history. And while the truth inevitably lies somewhere in the middle, I tend to side with the latter. Luck and circumstance just play too big of a role. Shakespeare would not be as well remembered if his plays weren't some of the first to be set to a printing press. Martin Van Buren would be talked about more if he was president when the Confederates attacked Fort Sumter, but he wasn't. Lincoln was. He gets the memorial. Oftentimes, the darkest hours of history produce its brightest stars. I'm sure that 24-year-old Charlie Chaplin was not thinking about any of this as he took a train from Kansas City to Los Angeles in December of 1913. But in eight short months, he and the still-new invention of motion pictures would be plucked from the shadows by the god of greatness to entertain the world through its first fully industrialized war. All this and more in part two of Charlie Chaplin. Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films. You gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome back to Behind the Slate, everybody. I'm your host, Aaron Strand, and this is episode two of Charlie Chaplin. I am so excited to get back into this story. Now, when we last left off, Chaplin had left the Carnot Silent Comedians to sign a one-year contract with the Keystone Film Company in Los Angeles, California. Keystone was run by the self-proclaimed king of comedy, Max Sinnott. Originally from Canada, he was the son of an iron worker who moved to Northampton, Massachusetts in his teens. It was there he saw a performance of the famous comedian Marie Dressler, and he decided that he wanted to become an actor. He told his mother that he wanted to meet Miss Dressler and get advice for a career in show business. His mother asked her 26-year-old attorney and future president, Calvin Coolidge, for an introduction. 
Known for his brevity, Silent Cal wrote a note that hilariously read, quote, Dear Miss Dressler, this boy wants to go on the stage. Yours truly, Calvin Coolidge. I swear to God, sometimes you read history and it feels like real-life Forrest Gump. Shockingly, this note convinced Dressler to see the boy, and she was kind enough to introduce him to the legendary actor and producer David Belasco, the namesake of the still-standing Belasco Theater on Broadway. Belasco gave Mac a job in burlesque, where he toured as a musical comedy singer. But by 1908, he was out of work, and turned to the dirty business of the galloping tintypes, as movies were disparagingly called. Film historian Gary Carey wrote, quote, there was a good reason why the movies were held in contempt by polite society. The Nickelodeons, named because admission cost you a nickel, weren't quaint prototypes of the present-day neighborhood theater as they are often remembered. They were smelly, urine-soaked, unsanitary fire traps tucked away in the tenement districts, patronized by immigrants and the poor, sometimes by prostitutes and pickpockets and other denizens of the dark. Nice people didn't go to Nickelodeons, or if they did, they wore big hats and looked over their shoulders before entering. The stage community looks down on the movies. Film acting wasn't real acting. It was making faces and funny gestures in front of a black box that added ten pounds to your waist and ten years to your face. At the risk of sounding like a total bro, you can kind of think of film at this time like cryptocurrency through the 2010s, you know? A new technology takes place in the shadows associated with illegality and surrounded by questions about its legitimacy and staying power. Going to a movie house in 1911 would have been a bit like going to some weird Bitcoin ATM in the back alley of a Brooklyn apartment complex in 2011. At this time, most films were 7-10 to 10 minute half reelers or 15 minute full reelers. Production was centered in and around New York City under the monopolizing thumb of the Edison studio and their debilitating patents that allowed them to control what could or could not be made. But despite this reputation, there were people that saw the great possibilities for these moving pictures. And the man we have to talk about, because he's one of those guys who will just keep popping up in the story, is D.W. Griffith. David Wark Griffith was born in 1875 in Oldham County, Kentucky. His father was a hard-drinking Confederate Army colonel turned state legislator called Roaring Jake Griffith, who, despite his bellicose name, was incredibly literate. They read Shakespeare aloud as a family. They grew up reading Dickens, Tolstoy, Poe, and Twain. However, Roaring Jake was also a bitter white supremacist who told romantic tales of the Civil War and the lost cause of the Confederacy. When Roaring Jake died suddenly, the doctor said it was because an old war wound had been sutured with inferior thread due to the Union naval blockade. This left a bitter scar in the mind of young D.W. In his teens, Griffith dropped out of school and became an actor in a local touring company. He began writing, and in 1907 traveled to New York City to meet with the Edison Studios producer and director of the groundbreaking narrative film The Great Train Robbery, Edwin Porter. Upon reading his scripts, Porter immediately rejected him. Griffith resentfully made his way to one of the few rival production houses, Biograph, where he eventually became main director. Over a feverish five-year period, Griffith directed or produced over 450 shorts, which he begrudgingly called Making the Sausages. But despite the factory-like output, Griffith infused the shorts with his literary upbringing. He'd translate storytelling principles of books, plays, poems, and operas into film. Although most techniques such as intercutting edits, camera placement, and lighting had been experimented with, Griffith 
was the first to synthesize these things into a grammar of cinema that we know today. It was his lifelong dream to turn novels into films, and it was this goal, combined with the memory of his father, that would lead him to make the horrifically racist first-ever blockbuster Birth of a Nation in 1915. But, back in 1908, Griffith's visionary enthusiasm for film had caught the imagination of young Mac Sinnott. Sinnott joined Biograph as an actor, but upon meeting D.W., he wanted to follow in his footsteps. So he literally followed in his footsteps. Every day. After work. All the way from their 14th Street studio to Griffith's 37th Street apartment. And he was really annoying. During these walks, Sinnott would pepper Griffith with questions and thoughts. D.W. shared his dreams of what this medium of film could be. Mac would later refer to these walks as, quote, My day in school my adult education, my university. Griffith, meanwhile, would describe Sinnott as burly, bear-like, and reminding me of someone's idiot brother. <laughs> just, oh my god, that just kills me. But despite Griffith's sneering assessment, Sinnott was no fool. He was one of the first to recognize the genius of Griffith's work, and he was determined to bring it to comedy. Sinnott was appointed to Biograph's principal director of comic productions, and between March 1911 and July 1912, he churned out 81 one-reel comedies. As a director, Max Sinnott was a working-class man who made working-class art. He was tough, burly, and sported a foul-smelling cigar chomped between his lips. His taste was guided by one principle. He was easily bored. That lack of attention span translated to his manic brand of physical comedy. Adam Kessel and Charles Bauman, owners of the prospering New York Motion Picture Company, took notice. Sinnott was just the man to run their new West Coast comedy studio, Keystone. And in early September 1912, Sinnott moved into an old farm at 1712 Alessandro Street in Edendale, California, bringing with him Fred Mace, Ford Sterling, and Mabel Normand as his stars. They were soon joined by other actors, cross-eyed Ben Turpin, gangly Charlie Chase, the walrus-whiskered Chester Conklin, Belly Bevan, Max Swain, Slim Somerville, and Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. At a rate of two or three a week, Sinnott churned out over 140 films. This early work featured two elements that became staples of Hollywood. The first were the Keystone Cops, a wildly popular group of bungling police officers who slipped and stumbled their way through investigations that eventually devolved into chaos. The second was a brilliant comedy device that disarmed viewers with wit and subtlety. I'm talking about throwing pies. Yes, pie throwing had been used on stage comedy throughout the vaudeville era, but it was Sinnott that turned throwing a big pie into someone's face into comedy gold. They threw so many pies at Keystone Studios, the bakery across the street stopped serving regular customers and just made pies for Keystone. Heavy crust, slurpy custard. We've all seen this in old films or Bugs Bunny cartoons, but did you ever stop and think, how weird is it that pie-throwing became synonymous with Hollywood comedy? The fad got so ridiculous that in 1927, Laurel and Hardy released a short titled Battle of the Century featuring a pie fight with over 3,000 pies, all set to whistle slides and fart noises. Take a listen to this. That's great stuff. Anyway, 
On Charlie's first night in Los Angeles, he ran into Mac in the hotel lobby. Mac was shocked to see how young Chaplin was. He thought he was hiring the old drunk from the Carno sketch Mumming Birds. Charlie could sense his doubts and got nervous. The next day, he boarded a big red Pacific electric trolley to take him from his hotel in Bunker Hill to the wild backcountry of Glendale, California. This area was so rural at the time, the trolley had a sign on its rear platform that said, Shooting jackrabbits from the trolley car is strictly prohibited. He got off at Edendale, just a few blocks from modern-day Silver Lake, and approached the ramshackle green fence that surrounded Keystone Studios. He paused, standing on the threshold of destiny. Suddenly, a crowd of loud, jovial American actors, some still in costume, came pouring out of the gate to grab lunch at a ramshackle general store across the street. Chaplin retreated to a far corner, his mind racing. What was he doing here? He didn't belong here. Thousands of miles from Kennington Road? Sure, he had just doubled his salary, but he had left behind a good steady job in a reputable theater company. For what? These pie-throwing Americans? He turned around and went back to his hotel. He repeated this for two days until finally he got a call from Max saying, Where the hell are you? Get down here now! Finally, Charlie showed up for work. The studio was nothing like Charlie had ever seen. It was a dusty lot filled with derelict bungalows used for dressing rooms, offices, and homes for the actors. In the center was the magnificent open-air stage. Charlie recalled, quote, A glare of light and heat burst upon me. The stage, a yellow board floor covering at least two blocks, lay in a blaze of sunlight, intensified by dozens of white canvas reflectors stretching overhead. On it was a wilderness of sets, Drawing rooms, prison interiors, laundry, balconies, staircases, caves, fire escapes, kitchens, cellars. Hundreds of actors were strolling about in costume. Carpenters were hammering away at new sets. Five companies were playing before five clicking cameras. There was a roar of confused sound. Screams, laughs, an explosion. Shouted commands, pounding, whistling, and the bark of a dog. These open-air stages were the reason Los Angeles was fast becoming a film hub. Consistent sunlight and lack of rain was perfect for film production. The fact that it was 3,000 miles from the repressive Edison Studios was an added bonus. Now, I personally don't like the Richard Attenborough biopic Chaplin, starring Robert Downey Jr., and I doubt I'll mention it again in the series, but there are some great scenes that show recreations of this early linen-draped stage that almost make the film worth it. In this tight-knit frat house of an environment, Chaplin was the weird new kid, his soft-spoken Englishness didn't fit in with the rough and rowdy vibe that was the culture at Keystone. Many commented on his poor hygiene and bad smell. I feel really bad for him here. Having never learned in his childhood and spending most of his adult life on the road, Chaplin was never taught how to properly clean himself. For example, he wouldn't wash his shirts. Instead, he'd just buy one shirt, wear it until it was filthy and tattered, and then throw it away and buy a new one. But what alienated him the most was his complete ignorance of the filmmaking process. Shooting scenes out of continuity, the need for actors to stay within sight lines were completely new to him. He was shocked when Sinnott explained his production method, quote, We get an idea, then follow the natural sequence of events until it leads up to a chase, which is the essence of our comedy. After years in the Carnot troupe where sketches were rehearsed for months at a time, this seemed crazy and amateurish. Charlie feared that his subtle carefully paced comedy would get lost in the chaos. 
Sensing his bewilderment, Senate didn't use Charlie and instead forced him to sit back and watch the Keystone process take place. There were three main types of Keystone films. Park films were the simplest and cheapest. They involved improvised mix-em-ups between courting couples and were shot in Westlake Park or Echo Lake. The next were films structured around a real-life public event. Senate would hear about a military parade or a horse race and send a unit to film the comedians fooling and playing out some impromptu farce among the crowd. The more formal films were shot on sets, which permanently stood on the stage. Usually a hallway with a door on either side, which could become a house or a hotel and often involved some kind of boudoir shenanigans. No matter what type of film it was, a Keystone director would never use more than 10 camera setups. Camera motion was unheard of, and no film was wasted. It was Mac's rule that once material was shot, it had to be used. The breakneck pace of production was echoed by the breakneck speed of the action. I should say here that these films are basically unintelligible to modern audiences. I mean, it looks like a bunch of aimless running and jumping, assault and pie-throwing and mugging for the camera. And honestly, we're not sure whether audiences of the day could understand them any better. Their success may have simply been due to the novelty that their early films still held over their audiences. Critic Walter Kerr wrote, quote, Perhaps we might have laughed too in 1914. At least you would have felt excitement. There's very little in the Senate films, for all their breakneck pace and bizarre manhandling of the universe that one would care to call humor. Normally it is possible to understand a joke that has faded to recapture the principle that once provoked laughter, while being unable to capture the laughter itself. Not so with Senate, for the most part. The jokes as jokes are rarely there, and all the activity is so headlong there's scarcely time to pause for the constructed quality of a jest. How can you recapture novelty in history, even in our own lives? How can I describe the first time I saw Beyonce's single ladies video? I mean, it felt truly mind-blowing. Or how can I talk about a night in 2007 when I was with a group of people lost in Brooklyn and a friend took out a brand new first-generation iPhone and used Google Maps to navigate us to a party? I mean, it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It felt totally miraculous. And then again, maybe Max Sennett's fast-paced film techniques aren't so alien. I think he could be talking about Keystone or TikTok when he says, quote, Once we stop to let anybody analyze us, we're sunk. After six weeks of studying, Sennett finally gives Charlie his debut role. The film was titled Making a Living, where he was to play an obnoxious swindler who asks people for money, steals their jobs, and seduces their women, leading, of course, to an inevitable bedroom mix-em-up. Charlie wore a top hat, a monocle, a large, drooping mustache. His head was full of ideas and gags that he'd been saving from his years on the music hall circuit. He arrived on set, ready to make this film the best Keystone film ever. And that's when he met director Henry Lerman didn't want to hear any of it. Lerman was better known by his nickname, Pate. He earned this after trying to bluff his way into a job at Biograph by claiming that he worked for the legendary Pate Freire Studios in France. D.W. Griffith saw through the ruse but hired him as an actor, and yet for years afterward, Lerman still spoke in a ridiculous fake French accent. He had another nickname on the studio lot, Mr. Suicide for the cruel indifference he displayed towards actors, continually placing them in dangerous situations for the thrill of an audience. He was vain, arrogant, a drug addict, and a hack. You can just imagine Charlie having a real Seinfeld moment. 
Lerman. Things didn't go well on set. Chaplin kept making suggestions, and Lerman kept shooting him down. In the editing room, Lerman cut out all of Chaplin's funny business from the final film to just, quote, teach him a lesson because he knew too much. Chaplin said, quote, when I saw the finished film, it broke my heart. He confided to fellow actor Chester Conklin, quote, I'm going to get out of this business. It's too much for me. I'll never catch on. It's too fast. I can't tell what I'm doing. I'm not sure any real actor should get caught posing for the flickers. Conklin took pity on the young actor, quote, I told him to stick it out. I told him he was going to be something very big in motion pictures. I lied like hell. I didn't think any such thing. I can't claim I had the foresight to see Chaplin's future, but I have as tender a heart as the next roughneck, and I couldn't help but try to cheer up that doleful Englishman. His criticisms of movies were nothing but whistling in the dark. Charlie was humiliated and needed encouragement. I talked him out of quitting. Chaplin wasn't the only one Lerman's spiteful cutting had disappointed. Back in New York, Kessel and Bauman hated the film. They complained to Senate, blaming him for hiring this, quote, silly, cheap comedian. Seeing Chaplin's uninspired performance, Mac yelled out, quote, I hooked myself a dead one. But just like Sidney had done throughout his life, Chaplin received help from a guardian angel. Only this time, it was legendary keystone ingenue Mabel Normand. Mabel was born in Staten Island in 1893. She began her career as a model before starring in a D.W. Griffith short film at Biograph. There, she met her future on-again, off-again boyfriend, Max Sennett. In addition to having the distinction of being the first film star to throw a pie, hitting the face of Fatty Arbuckle, Mabel was an incredibly intelligent and ambitious woman. She was an avid reader, swimmer, and pianist, and yet she could take a comedic fall with the best of them. Author Kenneth Lynn puts it bluntly, quote, She was the first sexy clown to become a film star. Clara Bow, Jean Arthur, Ginger Rogers, Rosalind Russell, Katherine Hepburn, Judy Holliday, Lucille Ball, and Goldie Hawn all followed in the tradition she established. Chaplin later wrote, quote, The He-Man atmosphere of the studio would have been almost intolerable but for the pultritudinous influence of Mabel. Her presence graced the studio with glamour. It's telling that Chaplin saw her as glamorous. Around town, she was known more as a foul-mouthed, hard-drinking, coke-snorting party girl. Producer Hal Roach said she was the wildest girl in Hollywood. But throughout his life, most of the women Chaplin knew were vaudevillians or prostitutes. Mabel appeared like a vision in comparison. Seeing the raw but talented Chaplin, Mabel felt he would be the perfect foil for her directorial debut in the short film Mabel's Strange Predicament. To sell the idea, Mabel reminded Sennett that all the best Keystone actors played stock characters. Ford Sterling was a comic Dutchman. Max Swain was Ambrose. Chester Conklin was Walrus. The 260-pound Roscoe Arbuckle was the boyishly lovable fatty. Chaplin needed a better character if he was going to live up to the hefty price tag. So on a February afternoon, when an unexpected rainstorm halted production for the day, Chaplin went into the men's dressing room while the rest of the actors played Penny Pinochle. He pulled out a pair of Fatty's oversized trousers, Ford's large shoes, Charlie Avery's too small formal jacket, Roscoe's father-in-law's tight-fitting derby, and a trimmed-down version of Max Swain's mustache. He selected a flexible bamboo cane instead of the stiff one he used on making a living. Something about the costume brought up memories from his childhood. The shuffling walk of a doorman, the one-legged corner turn from Casey's court circus, Fred Kitchen's ashtray kick. Quote, The moment I was dressed, the clothes and the makeup made me feel the person he was. I began to know him, and by the time I walked onto the stage, 
he was fully born. Now, there's a lot of different versions of how Charlie came up with the exact costume for the tramp. This is just my personal favorite. In truth, this costume, which was to become Chaplin's signature look for the next 30 years, had many inspirations from English music halls. Throughout Chaplin's career, English comedians would pop up and claim that they had invented the costume or the signature duck-footed walk. But to throw out a little amateur psychoanalysis, what made Charlie's tramp special was Charlie's real-life experience. As a latchkey kid, pretending to be a dignified actor while walking the halls of Hanwell, Charlie had already found the key quality of the tramp. No matter how down and out he was, he always tried to come off as a gentleman. Cinematographer Hans Cohenkamp recalled later, quote, I can still see the little shack where he came out of the dressing room. He'd come out and rehearse himself, that walk, the cane, the hat. It was funny. It was fresh. In the opening scene of Mabel's Strange Predicament, Chaplin, playing the drunken tramp, stumbles into a hotel lobby. He gets tangled in the leash of Mabel's dog, falls over a spittoon, flirts with every passing female. But what was so funny was the absurd and precarious dignity with which he carried himself throughout his antics. As they rehearsed the scene, actors and technicians began to gather around the set to watch and laugh. Lerman, the writer of the short, wanted to speed up the business, but Sinnott, who was co-directing, overruled him, letting the take run on for an unheard-of four minutes. Chaplin later said, quote, Under Sinnott's direction, I felt comfortable, because everything was spontaneously worked out on the set. As no one was positive or sure of himself, not even the director, I concluded that I knew as much as the other fellow. This gave me confidence. I began to offer suggestions, which Sinnott readily accepted. Thus grew a belief in myself that I was creative and could write my own stories. Sinnott indeed inspired this belief. Chaplin had immediately succeeded in slowing down the helter-skelter pace of the Keystone style, with subtlety and character. On the streetcar ride back to his hotel, one of the bit players told him, quote, Boy, you've started something. Nobody ever got those kind of laughs on the set before, not even Ford Sterling. The tramp was born. While Mabel's strange predicament was in the editing room, Sinnott learned of a live event, a kid's soapbox race, at the seaside resort of Venice. He sent Lerman and Chaplin down to capture the proceedings with a comic touch. What followed became the six-and-a-half-minute short, Kid Auto Races. On its surface, this is a very silly film, with only one joke. Lerman plays himself as a director trying to shoot documentary footage of teen boys racing in small derby cars, Charlie, as the drunken tramp, keeps wandering into his shot and mugging for the camera, which causes Lerman to become increasingly frustrated. Chaplin introduced a bunch of moves that would become character staples. The childlike swinging of his cane, the ridiculous tip of his too small bowler to an annoyed official. The conflict increases to a final close-up, where Charlie stares directly into the camera lens, making playful and absurd grimaces. And you thought being meadow was a new thing. But on a deeper level... There's so much going on here. Charlie embodies the public's fascination with this new moving camera invention. His shameless pursuit to see it and be seen by it still resonates today. Walter Kerr wrote, quote, He's elbowing his way into immortality, both as a character in the film and as a professional comedian to be remembered. And he's doing it by calling attention to the camera as camera. In fact, he is with this film establishing himself as one among the audience, one among those who are astonished by this new mechanical marvel. 
the seeds of his subsequent hold on the public, the mysterious and almost inexplicable bond between the performer and every man, were there. The film had another extraordinary quality, in that it is a documentary record of the public's first encounter with what would become its most famous inhabitant. We can observe in the spectators that day, as they progress from initial bewilderment and embarrassment into uninhibited laughter as they realize he's an entertainer. This would be the last time Charlie could perform in public without drawing a mobbing crowd. Charlie did one more film with Lerman called Between Showers, but recognizing the obvious tension between them, Senate assigned Chaplin to a veteran director named George Nichols. One of their films was a notable half-reeler titled A Film Johnny. There's a pretty well-restored print on YouTube, and it's totally worth a watch. In the film, Charlie goes to a Nickelodeon and watches Keystone films on screen, but after being kicked out, he sneaks into the real-life Keystone studio, where the chaos-inducing, lecherous tramp spoils various shoots across the lot, until eventually he's chased away and incapacitated with a fire hose. It's a cool time capsule because you see what Nickelodeons looked like in 1914, and you see the real-life Keystone Studios. There's cameos from all the other big actors, but most of all, you see the undeniable charisma of Chaplin before he even had a directorial debut. He packs so many jokes and gags, and mannerisms, and little looks into his performance. And some of them are quite edgy, such as a moment when he's in the Nickelodeon and he's watching a beautiful girl on screen, and he wrings out a wet rag onto his pants to hide a potential stain. In the dirty Nickelodeons at the turn of the century, sex was a powerful marketing tool. But in 1914, exhibitors were pressured by moral crusaders to clean up their establishments. States were setting up their own individual censor boards, meaning a film could be legal in one state but not another. The fact that films were becoming a middle-class pastime created a clear financial incentive to adhere to these moral expectations. So filmmakers like Sinnott responded to these changing conditions by burying the overt sexual content in early films into the subtext. Chaplin and Nichols completed five more films from March to April, but in the end, Nichols told Sinnott, quote, He was a son of a bitch to work with. The sentiment was spreading throughout the company. They didn't like the smelly, oddball Englishman. But Sinnott appreciated his industriousness. Quote, He wanted to work, nearly all the time. We went to work at eight, he was there at seven. We quit at five, but he'd still be around. Always wanting to talk about his work to me, all the time. Just like Mac had done with Griffith, now Chaplin was the annoying little brother, learning the occult language of film. Realizing they had established a strong friendship, Sinnott assigned Chaplin to Mabel Norman's solo directorial effort, Mabel at the Wheel. But once again, Charlie, prioritizing his work and his way above everything else, grew frustrated. Things came to a head when during a car chase scene, Charlie wanted to insert a bit of comic business with a hose, in which he inadvertently steps on the hose and then looks to see that it's not working and then releases his foot and sprays himself. Perhaps Mabel knew that this was an old gag. It had first been featured by the Lumiere brothers in 1896. But in any event, she overruled him. He would remember, quote, I could not take it, and from such a pretty girl. I'm sorry, Miss Normand, I will not do what I'm told, and I don't think you're competent to tell me what to do. Throwing a tantrum, he sat down on the side of the road and refused to work. This casual misogyny was not unusual for the time. But it was an early warning sign for what would be a lifelong issue relating to the opposite sex. 
For now, this cringe-inducing admission from Chaplin's own autobiography should do nothing but increase our respect for everything Mabel Norman and the many other pioneering women of film were able to accomplish. The crew packed up and returned to the studio. Sinnott was livid. A fight ensued in which Chaplin said he would rather be fired than compromise his taste. All this over a hose gag! He returned to his hotel, assuming that his days at Keystone were over. But when he returned the next morning, he found Mac and Mabel surprisingly conciliatory. Everyone apologized, and Chaplin agreed to finish Mabel at the wheel without the hose gag. It turns out that very night Sinnott was ready to fire Chaplin, the New York office called. They told him Kid Auto Races and Mabel's strange predicament were selling better than any Keystone comedy ever. Sinnott's orders were to prioritize Chaplin films above everything else. An early film magazine, The Cinema, wrote, quote, Kid Auto Races has struck us about the funniest film we've ever seen. Chaplin is a born screen comedian. He does things we have never seen done on the screen before. In reflecting upon Chaplin's uniqueness, David Robinson wrote, quote, The essential difference between the Keystone style and Chaplin's comedy is that one depends on exposition, the other one on expression. While the expository style may rely upon such codes and recognizable conventions as the keystone mime, the expressive style is instantly and universally understood. That was the essential factor in Chaplin's almost instant and worldwide fame. Illustrating this point, Chaplin later wrote, quote, They knew little about natural pantomime. In blocking a scene, a director would have three or four actors blatantly stand in a straight line facing the camera, and with the broadest gestures one would pantomime, I want to marry your daughter, by pointing to himself, then to his ring finger, then to the girl. Their miming dealt little with subtlety or effectiveness, so I stood out in contrast. His scrappy business sense tingling, Chaplin capitalized on this newfound leverage by announcing that he was ready to direct his own films. He offered to put up a guarantee of $1,500, all the money he had saved since moving to California, if his first film proved to be a failure. We actually don't know which film was Chaplin's directorial debut. In 1964, he said it was Caught in the Rain, but in a letter to Sidney in August 1914, he said it was 20 Minutes of Love. Whatever the case may be, Chaplin never had to pay the 1500 Both films proved to be successful. Chaplin had studied and absorbed the intricacies of filmmaking and was now beginning to flex his muscle as a storyteller. He had some idea of his rapid success. He would attend the cinemas in Los Angeles, studying the crowd's reaction in his obsessive effort to polish his performance. He never took days off. Sennett would say, quote, Chaplin used to sweat if he thought he hadn't done a thing as well as he should have. If anything in the run didn't please him, he clicked his tongue or snapped his fingers and said, why did I do it that way? What's the matter with me anyhow? He directed at least six films from April to August and co-directed three others with Mabel Normand. One of these, Mabel's Busy Day, which was shot in early June, features a scene at a racetrack. In the background, we can see the huge crowds having to be roped off from the performers. From kid auto races shot in early February to June, we see the evidence of Charlie's rapidly growing celebrity. Mabel's Busy Day premiered on June 13, 1914. Fifteen days later, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo. Chaplin wrote, quote, At the beginning of the First World War, popular opinion was that it would not last more than four months, that the science of modern warfare would take such a ghastly toll of human life that mankind would demand cessation of such barbarism. 
but we were mistaken. We were caught in an avalanche of mad destruction and brutal slaughter that went on for four years to the bewilderment of humanity. Just as Britain was calling for army volunteers, Keystone was promoting chaplain's release in the UK. Quote, Are you prepared for the chaplain boom? There has never been so instantaneous a hit as that of Charlie Chaplin, the famous Carnot comedian in Keystone comedies. Five days after war was declared, Chaplin wrote one of his rare letters to his brother, Sidney, in London. It began, quote, My dear Sid, you are doubtless realizing who is addressing you. Yes, it really is your brother, Charles, after all these years, but you must forgive me. The whole of my time is taken up with the movies. I write, direct, and play in them, and believe me, it keeps you busy. He goes on to tell Sid that he's gotten him a job offer for 250 a week acting at Keystone if he wants it, adding, quote, now about that money for mother, do you think it's safe for me to send you while the war is on? Or do you think it better for you to pay my share and then we will arrange things later on? I hope they don't make you fight over there. This war is terrible. I must draw to a close now as I am getting hungry. Just the second my valet tells me I have friends to take me out automobiling, so I am going to the beach to dine. Good night, Sid. No doubt the harsh contrast between wartime London and Charlie's newfound wealth in sunny California left quite an impression. Sidney took the job as quickly as he could and arrived in November 1914, acting at Keystone for 250 a week. Over the next six months, Chaplin would direct and star in 16 films. For the sake of brevity, I won't go into their descriptions here. He played everything from a dentist huffing gas to a caveman. What's interesting to note in these early films is that they depicted a much rougher, lustful, more violent version of the tramp than we would later come to know. As Sinnott would say, quote, only after Chaplin left Keystone did he abandon cruelty, venality, treachery, larceny, and lechery as the main characteristics of his tramp and made him pathetic and lovable. As they always are, moralists were again quick to condemn the vicious comic fun. But we have to remember that 1914 was a far more violent world than we experience today. In addition to the war, the entire audience had experienced violent punishment and discipline as children. Remember in episode one when Chaplin was in Hanwell Orphanage and the disciplinarian Captain Hundrum publicly whipped naked boys? I mean, this was not totally out of the ordinary. Commentators, as they do to this day, completely miss the point, blaming violent entertainment instead of fixing the violent society that makes that entertainment resonate. Much of this violent, you know, pants-kicking, slapping comedy doesn't make sense to modern audiences because people don't hit each other in daily life like they used to. Besides, it's not the violence that gets the laughs, it's how one responds. Chaplin said of the tramp, quote, The whole point of the little fellow is that no matter how down on his ass he is, no matter how well the jackals succeed in tearing him apart, he's still a man of dignity. By November 1914, the trenches of war extended from Switzerland to the North Sea. The public was shocked to hear of the bloodshed caused by machine guns, artillery, and poison gas. The gallant and noble fantasy of warfare sank into the blood-soaked mud of France. The horror was all-encompassing. People literally could not comprehend what was happening and how helpless they were to stop it. Desperate for an escape, they wanted something to take their minds off the horror unfolding before them. And in a strange twist of historical fate, the same forces that globalized this conflict and spread guns to every corner of the earth also spread film. Chaplin found himself in an unbelievable opportunity. For the first time in history, a single performer 
could appear at a thousand different theaters all at the same time. Looking for laughter, people turned to the little tramp for solace, and Chaplin didn't disappoint. His last work with Keystone would be the last time he didn't direct himself. Perhaps out of a sense of rivalry with D.W. Griffith, who was just beginning to shoot Birth of a Nation. Perhaps out of a mandate from the New York office to bring Broadway stars into film. Or perhaps just out of gratitude for the woman who started his career in show business. Sinnott agreed to direct Marie Dressler, America's greatest stage comic, in an adaptation of her long-running Broadway hit, Tilly's Nightmare, which would be renamed Tilly's Punctured Romance. Shot over an unprecedented 14 weeks, this film would go on to become the first ever feature-length comedy. Chaplin and Mabel Norman starred in supporting roles, and it was released in December 1914 to ecstatic public acclaim. Again, it's really strange to watch now because it's obviously a stage play turned into a silent film where characters are mouthing conversations and soliloquies, but the film further bolstered Chaplin's growing celebrity and legitimacy. With his year's contract up, Chaplin told Sinnott that he would require $1,000 a week. When Sinnott balked, telling him that was more than he made, Chaplin responded saying that it wasn't Sinnott's name that had the public lining up outside cinemas. Negotiations stalled, and Chaplin began seeking other offers. Chaplin walked out of the Keystone lot one day without ever saying goodbye. But he carried with him an incredible gift. Quote, I had confidence in my ideas, and I can thank Sinnott for that. For although unlettered like myself, he had a belief in his own taste, and such belief he instilled in me. His manner of working had given me confidence. It seemed right. His remark that first day at the studio, we have no scenario. We get an idea, then follow the natural sequence of events. That stimulated my imagination. Word spread quickly that the rising star with the funny feet was seeking a new contract. And in January... Chaplin was approached by representatives from the SNA Film Company. They had heard he was demanding $1,250 a week plus a $10,000 signing bonus. Chaplin simply nodded. Yes, that's exactly what I want. He signed. SNA, spelled E S S A N A Y, was founded by George Spohr and G M Anderson. Spohr and Anderson. S and A. Get it? It's funny. Spohr was an exhibitor in Chicago and had opened SNA Studios at 1333 Argyle Street in Chicago. The exterior of it is still standing today. Anderson, originally Max Aronson, who changed his name to hide his Jewish heritage, made his acting debut in the revolutionary cowboy film The Great Train Robbery in 1903. He then established a studio in Niles, California, outside San Francisco, where he became wildly successful. He earned over a million dollars producing, directing, and starring as Bronco Billy in over 366 shorts, which he produced at a rate of one a week, never missing a week. Chaplin traveled to Niles, but was not impressed with the little cowboy studio. He asked Anderson for his $10,000 signing bonus, and Anderson said, Don't worry, go to Chicago. Spores got the money. Chaplin arrived in Chicago on New Year's Day of 1915. As you can imagine, it was bitter cold. He made his way uptown to SNA Studios. Immediately, he knew something fishy was going on. They told him Spore was away on holiday, and they hadn't heard about the $10,000 signing bonus. His disappointment didn't stop there. As he toured the facilities, it was clear that the SNA Studio was the definition of an early film factory churning out low quality shorts like sausages. He was shocked to learn that to save money, they edited from negatives, refusing to pay a few extra dollars for proper positive rushes. Quote, 
Having been one of the first to enter the film business and being protected by patent rights, which gave them a monopoly, their last consideration was the making of good pictures. When he was introduced to head writer Luella Parsons, the future gossip columnist and Hollywood moralist, Chaplin informed her that he only performed his own material. Still waiting for his $10,000 signing bonus, he assembled a small troupe of SNA actors. In his search for a leading lady, he even auditioned a 16-year-old Gloria Swanson, who would later recall, quote, He was trying to get me to work up routines with him. These all involved kicking each other in the pants, running into things, and falling all over each other. He kept laughing and making his eyes twinkle and talking to me in a light, gentle voice, encouraging me to let myself go and be silly. All morning, I felt like a cow trying to dance with a toy poodle. Moreover, I knew after an hour that I didn't want to spend the next month or so trying to be cute and elfish, so I made very little effort and finally told him I just didn't see the humor in many of the things he was asking me to do. We were both perfectly pleasant after that, but I could see that he was hurt and annoyed. Throughout her long career, she would break out her Chaplin impression at parties, eventually performing it on screen in Sunset Boulevard. His first film with SNA was a 28-minute two-reeler aptly titled His New Job. He lampooned his previous employer. The Tramp auditions for Lockstone Studios, where he deals with a hard-of-hearing executive with one of those big old-timey ear horns. Max Sennett had never been the best listener. As was customary, he had no script. In fact, surviving notes from this period reveal that he still struggled with literacy. Historian Jeffrey Vance says, quote, It is somewhat jarring to see how unsure his writing and spelling were during this period. The inscriptions stand in stark contrast to the urbane and sophisticated personal image that Chaplin perpetuated. Luckily, the improvisational Senate style adhered nicely to the gaps in Charlie's literary education. He improvised his way through the story, finding inspiration from various props and settings around the studio. The days ticked by and still no spore and still no $10,000. His new job was ready for release on February 1st, and all of a sudden Spore shows up. It turns out that Spore, furious about the terms of the contract, had been intentionally avoiding the studio. It was only after his business friends congratulated him on signing Chaplin and seeing that his new job had more advanced sales than any SNA film before did he show up with the money. But it was too little too late. Furious at Spore and frustrated by the Chicago studio, Chaplin decided he would rather go back to Niles, California. He got on a train, taking a few actors he had found with him. He arrived in Niles and was given a room in a decrepit bungalow on the Bronco Billy Studios. Roland Tothero, who lived on the property and would go on to be Chaplin's cinematographer for the next 30 years, remembered his arrival. Quote, his bungalow was anything but a palace. We heated some tea and an old wood stove because, you know, Charlie was an Englishman. Charlie only had one handbag with him. We opened his bag to put the things out. All he had in it was a pair of socks with the heels worn out, a couple of old dirty undershirts, and an old worn-out toothbrush. I'll never forget it. He had nothing. No bed. Nothing in his handbag. Charlie had a certain empathy with the eccentric cowboy Bronco Billy Anderson. His own bungalow was equally derelict and empty, despite his millionaire status. Charlie was ready to get to work, but he had one major problem. There was just a bunch of dudes out here. He still didn't have a leading lady. So after a few local auditions, he wasn't satisfied. Finally, one of the cowboys on the property recommended a woman who frequented Tate's Cafe on Hill Street in San Francisco. Her name was Edna Perviance. Born in Nevada in 1895, Edna was tall, blonde, very serious, and an excellent pianist. At the time, she was working as a secretary and had no acting experience. 
They went to a party together where Chaplin boasted that he could hypnotize Edna in 60 seconds. For the sake of the joke, she played along. Charlie was smitten. His first film in Niles was called A Night Out. It was a Carnot-style comedy set in a cafe. Once shooting was completed, things got a little testy. Chaplin took a day trip to San Francisco, and when he returned, he found Anderson and Tothero worried about the production schedule editing his film. He told them, take your hands off my picture. Chaplin then insisted that they order a machine to properly print positive rushes for editing. The machine was huge and expensive and further added to delays. Chaplin then set to work on the first of his many boxing-themed films, titled The Champion. Chaplin was a huge boxing fan, and he consistently turned to the sport as a source of inspiration. To make up for the delays with the printing machine, Chaplin dashed off to shoot two quick park-style films. At this time, he and Edna had begun a romantic relationship. The only surviving letter from Charlie to Edna from this time reads, quote, My darling, my heart throbbed this morning when I received your sweet letter. It could be nobody else in the world that could have given me so much joy. Your language, your sweet thoughts, and the style of your love note only tends to make me crazy over you. With his heart swelling, Chaplin's artistry took a major step forward with his next film, The Tramp. Now, until this point, his film persona was essentially a drunk with a childlike impertinence. But in this film, his character deepens into a romantic vagabond, a hobo with a heart of gold. Now, it's worth asking, why did this character resonate so deeply with the American public? Well, for the last hundred years, as the Industrial Revolution mechanized the workforce and rural communities were dispersed by the drive for capitalist competition, many people found themselves dispossessed. Recessions in the 1870s and 1890s increased the problem, and Americans began to notice thousands of vagrants, hobos, and tramps traveling across the country on foot or by train. You know, the majority of civilized folk greeted these men with disdain and fear. Yet at the same time, they became a romantic symbol of freedom and a pre-industrialized life. Author Jack London, who was a self-proclaimed tramp in his late teens, wrote, quote, Perhaps the greatest charm of tramp life is the absence of monotony. In Hoboland, the face of life is protean, an ever-changing phantasmagoria where the impossible happens and the unexpected jumps out of the bushes at every turn of the road. But by 1914, these armies of the unemployed began to be seen as fertile ground for the spread of political unrest and communism. Frank Tannenbaum of the Industrial Workers of the World led a protest in which 500 so-called tramps entered a Manhattan Catholic church demanding food and shelter. When the police arrived, violence broke out, and Tannenbaum was arrested. Months later, a bomb exploded in St. Patrick's Cathedral as retribution for Tannenbaum's prison sentence. Meanwhile, in Europe, countries were having to devote their entire economies to supporting the millions of men fighting in the Great War. Food and materials were rationed, and consequently, people back home were suffering. Protests were breaking out in all the European capitals. Society was literally coming apart at its seams. In a way, Charlie's character was a romantic idealization of the tramps of yore, childlike, free-spirited, and innocent. He defanged the image of the, quote, threatening hobo, and invited middle-class people to take joy and relate to their struggles. The film The Tramp opens with Charlie caressing a flower. He saves a farmer's daughter from some bandits and then foils their plot to rob the farm. He falls in love with Edna, 
but his joy is crushed when her handsome fiancé returns. Dejected, he leaves the farm, and for the first time makes his signature exit, waddling off to the horizon, shoulders drooped. Then suddenly perking up to a jaunty step as the screen irises around him. Shot in only ten days, the tramp demonstrated a major leap in Charlie as a writer, director, editor, and actor. He was always a depressive romantic who luxuriated in his own moody loneliness, a real goth kid if you ask me, but now he had translated that feeling into comedy with a sad ending. And for millions of people who also felt alienated by industrialization, mass media, and war, they saw the lonely little tramp as a projection of their own inner lives. Chaplin and Anderson agreed that the Cowboy Studio and Niles weren't big enough for the both of them. Chaplin returned to Los Angeles. He shot by the sea near Crystal Pier in a single day with only nine camera setups. This would be the last of his one-reelers. Chaplin took advantage of the constant moving and lack of home studio to declare that he needed more time between pictures. His next film, Work, would take almost two months to deliver. For this film, he took over the now-demolished Bradbury Mansion in Bunker Hill. It was a technical marvel of a film, most memorable for its opening sequence in which the poor Charlie is pulling a cart, weighed down by his equipment and his abusive boss whipping him forward. He attempts to go up a hill, but the weight of the cart tips back, sending Charlie, still attached to the front shafts, dangling in the air. This gag became an iconic image of labor exploitation that Soviet filmmakers would copy frequently. It also left a lasting impression on an Irish playwright and Chaplin superfan named Samuel Beckett, whose masterpiece, Waiting for Godot, or Waiting for Godot, depending on your preference, would feature multiple tramp characters, one of whom must hopelessly pull a man on a cart. The film culminates with an increasingly intricate set of disasters, explosions, and chaos that delivers the boss and their domineering clients their comeuppance. After completing work, Charlie temporarily moved into the old Majestic studio on Fairview Avenue, where he shot a woman. In this, he makes his final appearance in drag. He had appeared as a woman in a couple of minor Keystone films, but this one was really special. Now, the 1910s had seen a resurgence in the female impersonators of American entertainment. Performers like Carol Norman, the male Patty, and Burt Savoy were making big money touring as live acts. Of course, because history just repeats itself incessantly, moralist crusaders were in an uproar over non-binary representation on film. Charlie's transformation into a woman is really remarkable, and it's filled with tongue-in-cheek bodiness and subtextual sex jokes. The film was met with widespread disapproval. It was even banned in Scandinavia until the 1930s. Chaplin was stung by the criticism. Actor Fred Goodwins recalls, quote, Suddenly the critics made a dead set at him. They roasted his work wholesale, called it crude, ungentlemanly, and risque. Thus began a new era in Chaplin comedies. Clean, clever, dramatic stories with a big laugh at the finish. Chaplin decided to return to the sentimentality that had worked so well in The Tramp with his next film, The Bank. In this film, Charlie plays a lowly janitor who is in love with a beautiful bank secretary played by Edna. Only, she has her sights on a suave cashier. The janitor falls asleep and dreams that he rescues Edna from a gang of robbers. And as he goes in for a kiss, he wakes up to find himself caressing the mop in his arms. He leaves work, passing Edna and her cashier crush without them even noticing. 
It still works today. I mean, this was a new invention at the time. Comedy with a sad ending. I mean, we'd call this dramedy now, and it appears all the time in film and television. This was the first one, and it blew people's minds. Chaplin let 56 days elapse before his next film. Still without a home base, Chaplin rented a boat for a film called Shanghai. In this film, cameraman Harry Ensign developed a tripod mount with a pivot. It was controlled by a heavy counterweight, and it would allow the camera to swing and recreate the look of a storm-tossed ship. He then returned to his roots, adopting his breakout carno sketch, Mumming Birds, into the film A Night Out. He then put the tramp back into the rough-and-tumble streets with police. It opens with Charlie being released from jail with the title card, Once Again Into the Cruel, Cruel World. He's immediately met by a clergyman who begs him to go straight. Within minutes, the priest has robbed Charlie of his last cent. He spends the rest of the film ironically trying to return to the safety of prison. Chaplin's last film for SNA is a strange byproduct of its time. It was called Charlie Chaplin's Burlesque on Carmen. The opera Carmen was having a sort of Hollywood moment. Samuel Goldwyn had paid a huge sum of money to lure Met opera star Geraldine Farrar to Hollywood, and Cecil B. DeMille adopted the opera for silent film. It sounds weird, you are correct, but hey, whatever, they were trying anything. Sensing an opportunity, a rival studio created their own silent version of Carmen, and pretty soon competing Carmens were sweeping through theaters. So to capitalize on the sensation, Chaplin shot a two-reel satire of Carmen. There's no other way to put it. It's weird. Although it does feature a shocking death scene in which Chaplin stabs Carmen, played by Edna, and then stabs himself with realistic ferocity. After a beat of stillness, he suddenly twitches back to life. He and Edna get up laughing, revealing that the dagger had been a collapsible prop all along. Things got bad when SNA decided to turn his two-reeler into a four-reel feature film with a bunch of random extra scenes that didn't fit and broke continuity. Chaplin was furious and took them to court. He applied for an injunction to prevent SNA from releasing the feature. A bitter legal battle ensued, and it would last until 1922. Chaplin's initial disdain for Spore was fully vindicated when Spore threatened to start a scandal in the press due to Chaplin's mother being left in a British insane asylum. The final weeks of 1915 found Chaplin living alone in a house in Santa Monica. He befriended a former vaudeville star turned restaurant owner named Nat Goodwin. Chaplin seems to have idolized the 58-year-old as a bit of a father figure, and although many of his contemporaries found Goodwin difficult, he had been married eight times, Chaplin said, quote, I very much revered him and his great reputation. Sidney, meanwhile, had just finished his contract with Keystone and was now completely devoted to being Charlie's full-time business manager. He invited Charlie to New York to find a studio partner for Charlie's next films. Before he left, Goodwin gave Charlie some advice he never forgot. Quote, When you get to New York, keep off Broadway. Keep out of the public's eye. The mistake with many successful actors is that they want to be seen and admired. It only destroys the illusion. You've captivated the world, and you can continue doing so if you stand outside it. Charlie had been working nonstop for two straight years, and his lack of home base had left him out of touch with what was happening in the world. He sent Sidney a telegram that he was going to take a train to New York. And that evening, as his train pulled into Amarillo, Texas, Chaplin was shaving in the bathroom. He glanced out the window and saw a huge crowd gathered on the platform. They were shouting his name. 
Suddenly, there was a knock at the door, and a man's booming voice said, On behalf of the mayor of Amarillo, Texas, and all your fans, we invite you to have a drink and a light refreshment with us. Chaplin got dressed and emerged to a mobbing crowd. The mayor gave a speech, after which Charlie said a few awkward words. As they ate together, he asked how they knew he was coming. The mayor informed him that the telegram operator had divulged his itinerary to the press. At every stop across the country, bigger and bigger crowds mobbed his train. As he approached New York City, the chief of police requested that he get off at 125th Street instead of Grand Central because they didn't have enough officers to control the throng of people who had been gathering since early morning. Never one to pass up an opportunity for self-pity, Chaplin was his usual super-emo goth self, saying, quote, I had always thought I would like the public's attention, and here it was, paradoxically isolating me with a depressing sense of loneliness. Without him even realizing it, Chaplin had become the world's first global icon. Possibly only Mickey Mouse, who Walt Disney would admit was inspired by Chaplin, is more instantly recognizable. As a New York Times reporter would write, even the few traveling movie shows in Africa were showing Charlie Chaplin films to adoring crowds who would chant for him by name. He would later say, quote, I am known in parts of the world by people who have never heard of Jesus Christ. Newspapers carried cartoons and poems about him. He was the character of comic strips and of animated cartoon series. There were Chaplin dolls, toys, books, merch. Chaplin impersonators were popping up in theaters and on street corners across the country. And this was happening even in Britain. Even in war-torn France, there was a popular song called the Charlot One-Step. Entire dance crazes based on the tramp's waddling little walk were spreading across the world. Listen to this. There's a funny man I know Who gets all the people's dough He works in a movie show Mr. Charlie Chaplin Dancing in the cabaret In the thing of bygone days There's a way to stand the queen of praise So Charlie Chaplin beat So funny Chaplin beat When he comes down the street He makes a cup flop They chase him round the town and auto knocks him down For Charlie plenty times a day They kill him But they never kill him like a bug He gives the gals a hug And when he jumps his toe And bangs his nose You tumble from your seat One fat lady that I saw Got a dislocated jaw Laughing at so Charlie Chaplin Sidney convinced Charlie that they needed to get control of this mass of unlicensed material. They set up the Charles Chaplin Music Company and the Charles Chaplin Advertising Service, employing lawyers and representatives to chase down royalties wherever they could. The messianic power of mass media had found its first patron saint. Essayist Ben Hecht wrote, quote, Charles Chaplin with the wit of a vulgar buffoon and the soul of a world artist. He walks, he stumbles, he dances, he falls. He is cruel, he is absurd, unmanly, tawdry, cheap, artificial, and yet behind his crudities, his obscenities, his inartistic and outrageous contortions, his divinity shines. He is the mob god. He is a child and a clown. He is a gutter snipe and an artist. He is the incarnation of the latent, imperfect, and childlike genius that lies buried under the fiberless flesh of his worshippers. They have created him in their image. He is the mob on two legs. They love him and last. Fruits to Om, glory to Zeus, mercy, Jesus, praise be to Allah, 
hats off to Charlie Chaplin. Like other comic immortals before him, John Falstaff and Don Quixote, Chaplin's little tramp was known for his mock valor. In the midst of Chaplinitis, Charlie and Sidney found themselves in the center of a bidding war. Universal, the Triangle, Fox, Vitagraph, all bid for his services. But in March 1916, they signed with the Mutual Film Corporation. Mutual's publicist Terry Ramsey wrote, quote, Chaplin will receive a salary of $670,000 for his first year's work under the contract. The total operation informing the Chaplin Producing Company involved the sum of $1,530,000. This stands as the biggest operation centered about a single star in the history of the motion picture industry. Next to the war in Europe, Chaplin is the most expensive item in contemporaneous history. David Robinson wrote, quote, No person in the world other than a king or emperor, except maybe Charles Schwab of the U.S. Steel Corporation, had ever received even half this salary. You can imagine the total cognitive dissonance this created in his adoring public. I mean, their favorite homeless clown, champion of the dispossessed, had now ascended into an incomprehensible stratosphere of wealth. And these headlines were sharing the front page with the latest casualty reports from the Battle of Verdun. That's certainly enough to make the average person do a double take. Great Britain, meanwhile, had just authorized its first-ever nationwide draft, demanding all British men between the ages of 18 and 41 report for service. And here was Chaplin, a British citizen abroad, becoming the richest performer in history. Of course, there was going to be blowback. Pastors decried Chaplin's extravagance. In response, Charlie did everything he could to shrug off his riches, saying, quote, Honestly, it is a matter I do not spend time thinking about. Money and business are very serious matters, and I have to keep my mind off of them. In fact, I do not worry about money at all. His words were then twisted by the press, who began describing Chaplin as a tight-fisted miser who refused to share his newfound wealth. This gross exaggeration would follow him for the rest of his life. Chaplin defended himself again, saying, quote, No one realizes more than I do that my services may not be worth $100 a week five years from now. I'm simply making hay while the sun shines. Money is not everything. I can find more happiness in work than anything else I know of. Uncomfortable with his newfound fame, Chaplin took a train back to Los Angeles. At a stop in Chicago, he was pushed to do an impromptu publicity stunt outside of a theater where one of his films was playing. No one recognized him. And the cashier, bored by the many Chaplin impersonators that had frequented the theater, merely scoffed, calling his shuffle inauthentic. Mutual opened Lone Star Studios, named for Chaplin, not Texas, on March 27th on the corner of Lillian Way and Eleanor Ave in L.A. It was state-of-the-art with dressing rooms, administrative buildings, a development lab, offices, a projection room, and workshops. At the center was the largest stage in California, big enough for Chaplin and later Buster Keaton when he took over the property, to construct huge exterior sets for street scenes. Roland Tothero, who had just left SNA, was hired as a camera assistant and quickly became the chief cameraman. Chaplin assembled a stock company of players he poached from SNA. Edna was the leading lady, of course. An old Carnot trooper named Albert Austin joined the group, as well as an ideal Goliath to Chaplin's diminutive David in the towering actor Eric Campbell. Enjoying more freedom, 
Charlie was able to further develop his improvisational writing style. Roland Tothero remembers, quote, He didn't have a script at the time, and he never checked whether the scene was in the right place so that continuity was followed. The script would develop as it went along. I would never leave that camera when they were rehearsing. On a typical day, we would shoot from around 8 or 9 in the morning until a few hours after dinner, with a lunch break in between. Lots of his people would stand around and watch. He used to use their reactions to see how his stuff was going over. A lot of times we'd get through a sequence and run it maybe three or four days later, and he'd figure, no, that's not it, so we can go on to something else. Lots of times, he'd start building sets before he was really set on his story. From May to December of 1916, Charlie completed eight films, each displaying an increasing proficiency of set pieces and gag construction. There was The Floor Walker, where Charlie worked at a department store. The Fireman, in which the little tramp is, you guessed it, a fireman. There's The Vagabond, a sentimental comedy in which he's a lovelorn street musician. There's 1AM, maybe his virtuoso performance as a drunk. There was The Count, which was by far his most elaborate set construction. He built a shop, a kitchen, and an opulent home complete with a ballroom. There was The Pawn Shop, in which every item of the titular shop becomes a tool for his ingenious gag invention. His next film, Behind the Screen, is notable for having one of the most clear examples of homosexuality seen in commercial cinema prior to the 1950s. In the film, Edna is disguised as a man in workman's overalls and a cap. Charlie catches this boy powdering his face. Eric Campbell enters and, having split his pants in a previous scene, asks the boy to help him sew them up. Edna faints and her cap falls off, revealing her hair. She comes to and begs Charlie not to expose her. They kiss just as Campbell re-enters the room, at which point he smiles knowingly and says, You naughty boys, then does a little fairy dance and exits. In his next film, The Rink, Chaplin displays his incredible skill as a skater, prompting audiences to start to wonder, is there anything he can't do? Chaplin would reflect, quote, Fulfilling the mutual contract, I suppose, was the happiest of my career. I was light and unencumbered, 27 years old, with fabulous prospects in a friendly, glamorous world before me. Within a short time, I would be a millionaire. It all seemed slightly mad. Amidst this profitable creativity, there were some struggles. Back in March or April of 1915, Chaplin had been interviewed by Rose Wilder Lane for the San Francisco Bulletin, which released 29 articles containing Chaplin's supposed life story. Charlie approved these articles. In fact, according to Lane, she even came to Los Angeles for a follow-up interview after the original 29 articles were published. But in 1916, book publishers were scrambling to get a hold of any crumb of Chaplin content they could get their hands on. They decided to combine the articles into a book titled Charlie Chaplin's Own Story. When Chaplin heard the plan, he freaked. He hired a big-shot lawyer and accused Lane of fabricating the whole story. He took them to court and obtained a legal injunction to stop distribution of the book. But a few copies survived and have since been reprinted. I mentioned this in episode one, but I want to go into it at length because I think it brings up valuable points about both Chaplin, the man, and about biographies in general. Now, when dealing with history, and particularly the history of a beloved icon, we have to wade through uncertainty and uncomfortable truths. Author David Robinson, whose fantastic book, Chaplin, His Life and Art, is the primary source for this podcast, is, for better or worse, undoubtedly pro-Chaplin, both in this case and in future controversies. 
He believes fully what Charlie's lawyers said, that Rose Wilder Lane is a conniving liar, she lied about her mother's life in Little House on the Prairie, and she lied about Charlie's life here, all to sell newspapers. But is that really true? Rose Wilder Lane was an author, journalist, and libertarian commentator with a career that spanned over five decades. She would go on to transcribe and edit the life stories of Henry Ford, Jack London, and Herbert Hoover all a bunch of racists, but that has nothing to do with the fact that none of them accused her of distorting the facts of their stories. Many scholars have pointed out that certain scenes from this book, Charlie Chaplin's own story, are plagiarized from the novel Oliver Twist, most blaming Lane for the plagiarism. But Oliver Twist was Charlie's favorite book. And I think this fact gives away the truth, or at least what I think the truth is about this odd pseudo-biography. I think that whenever Chaplin was faced with adversity, he reverted to the coping skills his mother taught him in the tiny boarding houses of South London. He'd act, just like he and his mother would look through the window, watching people below, making up stories about their lives. He'd do the same thing for his characters, and the same thing about himself. I had a teacher once who'd say, the most important thing you must learn as an actor is having a talent for your talent. Meaning, you have to manage and control your ability to play make-believe so that it doesn't destroy your life. Chaplin, at times, lacked a talent for his talent. I don't think he told these exaggerated stories maliciously. I think he just wanted to put on a good show. And honestly, when I was his age, I would have done the same thing. He was 25 when he gave these interviews. Lord knows when I was 25, you know, everything was a fishing story and the catch just kept getting bigger and bigger. When he realized that people back in London might read his tall tales that were never supposed to leave a San Francisco magazine, he panicked. That's what I believe drove Chaplin to destroy the book and attack Miss Lane's reputation. A real dick move. It's not cool what he did. And he will do many not cool things in the future. Just because he's a good artist doesn't mean he can act with impunity. And like all future subjects on Behind the Slate, it is my hope and what I see as my job to describe their actions and choices in the most honest way possible. Anyway, at the same time as the legal battle, a campaign was growing to discredit Chaplin for his failure to join the British Army. People had discovered a war risk clause in his contract, stipulating that Chaplin shall not leave the U.S. within the life of the contract. This looked pretty bad. After two years of war, Britain had just experienced its deadliest day of combat in the nation's history, when 60,000 men perished on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Why should Charlie get to remain in America making jokes while hundreds of thousands of his countrymen were dying. He began receiving anonymous letters containing the famed white feather of cowardice. There was even a parody song that suggested the tramp should be shipped off to the ill-fated Gallipoli campaign. And his little baggy trousers, they want mending before we send him to the Dardanelles. When the moon shines bright on Charlie Chaplin, his boots are cracking for want of blacking. And his little baggy trousers, they want mending. Before we send to him to the Chaplin went into damage control. 
He claimed to have reported to the British Embassy, but was turned away for being underweight. And in fairness, he did only weigh about 120 pounds soaking wet. Sidney, too, was accused of draft dodging, but he also was given a reprieve. The British government even released a statement defending Chaplin, saying, quote, Chaplin could volunteer any day he wanted to, but he is of as much use to Great Britain now making big money and subscribing to war loans as he would be in the trenches. But in another sense, Chaplin was already on the front lines. His films were being shown in tents across France to wounded and recovering soldiers. Some field doctors fervently believed his comedy improved recovery times, referring to the films as, quote, Chaplin miracle cures. In 1915, Jean Renoir was convalescing from a leg wound he received at the front when he fell in love with his first Chaplin film. Writer Alexander Woolcott would say, quote, Such a bearer of healing laughter the world had never known. It was these extraordinary circumstances that allowed his greatness to shine. In response to the fame and controversy, Chaplin began to change. He no longer allowed employees to watch rehearsals while filming. He hired a valet, Tom Harrington, and a chauffeur, Toraichi Kono, who became two of his closest confidants. Attending fights and baseball games became impossible as the crowds flocked around him. Roly Tothero remembers, quote, He didn't mingle around with the bunch anymore. He more or less entertained up at his house, and the people that he had associated with no doubt were people of reputation, authors and writers and actors. Just like during his brief time on the West End, Chaplin yearned to be a part of the global intelligentsia. With the help of British actress Constance Collier, he practiced his elocution, removing any trace of a Cockney accent. Chaplin's use and insistence upon obscure vocabulary remained throughout his life, and while sure he had a deep love for language, his voluptuous vocabulary belied his former illiteracy. Chaplin's final four films for Mutual proved to be some of the greatest shorts he would ever make. The first was Easy Street, a parody on Victorian melodrama. He spent $10,000 constructing a massive T-junction street set, reminiscent of his boyhood South London, which would become one of his favorite sets throughout his career. In the film, Charlie joins the police force to fight a bully, played by Eric Campbell, and restore peace to Easy Street. He would comment in a press release, quote, if there is one human type more than any other that the whole world has it in for, it is the policeman type. Of course, the policeman isn't really to blame for this public prejudice against his uniform. It's just the natural human revulsion against any sort of authority. Gone were the one-day film shoots of old. Now Charlie wanted perfection. He went way over schedule in what would become the new normal for all future Chaplin productions. It's very interesting Sidney insisted on saving all the outtakes from this time, and thanks to this massive archive of material that has survived, we can not only see why production was running over schedule, but we can see the incredible evolution of Chaplin's craft. Chaplin still didn't write scripts. He developed his stories organically, shooting them chronologically from beginning to end, throwing away any bit or gag that didn't work to his liking. Remember, it was only two years earlier that Max Sinnott demanded only one take could be used per scene. Listen to this development process for his next film, The Cure. It starts with a simple idea, right? The tramp attends a hydrotherapy day spa. Take one shows a forecourt full of patients and staff, and the center is a fountain. Their actions and characters are developed. 
By take 17, Chaplin enters as a bellboy, pushing Eric Campbell in a wheelchair with a gouty foot bound and a big bandage. By take 23, Chaplin has shifted the action from the forecourt to a lobby. Take 37, he has changed his costume from a bellboy to a spa attendant in a white jacket, and the patient has changed from Campbell to another actor. Now he starts with his first gag. As the lobby becomes overwhelmed with wheelchair traffic, he takes the role of traffic cop, directing the wheelchairs to and fro. Take 77. Now the fountain is a well, and the main patient is a drunk played by John Rand. By take 84, Chaplin can't resist and now has taken over Rand's role as the drunk, completely abandoning his attendant character. He's now decided to center the action around one of his favorite comic set pieces, A Revolving Door. Okay, take 100. Chaplin has found the story. The drunk tramp has arrived at the day spa and quickly makes an enemy out of the gout-riddled Eric Campbell. He samples the spa amenities, while the spa director orders the staff to dispose of the liquor he brought in his luggage. But, by accident, the liquor is emptied into the spa pool, causing the entire patient population to get drunk. By take 622, Chaplin once again tries to insert the traffic cop gag but ultimately abandons it as it was out of character for his drunken tramp to ever create order out of chaos. The final take is take 677. Considering he averaged about 20 shots a day, it's clear to see how his productions became increasingly longer. This was totally unheard of in Hollywood at the time, and it really speaks to Chaplin's visionary status. This was a time when most feature films were shot in less than a month, D.W. Griffith refused to take any shot more than once, believing that take two was an admission to inadequate rehearsal and error. Any modern filmmaker knows that this iterative development process is now standard practice, only it takes place during the writing portion of development. Look, it takes untold hours and effort to truly craft a compelling story. But in 1916, this was wild. And it honestly makes me a little sad that the modern financial constraints of movie making make this type of improvisational workshopping almost impossible. I mean, maybe Mike Lee is perhaps the closest filmmaker who uses this style to construct a story, but even now he's having trouble raising funds. Chaplin's next film, The Immigrant. It's a two-reel masterpiece. I'm going to briefly go through his development process again because it is wild. The story began as a film about a group of Parisian bohemians. Okay, they're hanging out at a cafe. By take 46, Edna is introduced at a cafe where Charlie shares a plate of beans with her. More than 100 takes later, she's still eating beans. This became the source of a mutual press release, quote, Continuous diet of beans causes a real gaggin. Edna Purviance forced to consume this viand and latest Chaplin comedy. As the takes go by, Charlie realizes that his one and only coin has fallen through his pocket and he has no way to pay for the beans. He finds the coin on the floor and hands it to the waiter, who promptly bites it and discovers that it's counterfeit. At some point, a lecherous artist comes over and wants to paint Edna. Charlie chases him away and then steals his change to pay for his food. But this was not enough for a full two-reeler. Looking for a backstory, Charlie decides they needed a boat. And not just any boat but a passenger ship full of strange and pitiful immigrants. On board, Charlie gets involved with a group of murderous gamblers. At first, they play dice, and then he changes his mind and has them play cards, gives him an opportunity to show off his high-speed shuffling skills. Charlie meets Edna and her sweet-faced old mother. But when the mother is robbed of all her savings while sleeping, Charlie consoles Edna and stuffs her purse with all the money he has won at cards. The cafe scenes are takes 1 through 384. 
The boat scenes are takes 385 through 730. Now, he rebuilds the cafe set and reshoots the whole scene with the addition of seeing Edna's handkerchief is edged with black, signifying that she's in mourning. Her mother has died. Now, Chaplin the writer is really cooking with gas. He decides to tie the two acts together with an audacious sequence that will become legendary for its place in film history. He shoots a scene of the boat approaching New York City. As it passes the Statue of Liberty, we see a title that reads, Arrival at the Land of Liberty. He then cuts to the huddled masses of immigrants on the deck. The immigration authorities arrive and throw a rope around them like cattle. The masses are brutally herded through the immigration center at Ellis Island. The film premiered in June 1917, only two months after the U.S. entered the war. Americans were shocked to see their country shown in such a negative light. But the circumstances asked for it. As always happens in the midst of armed conflict, the country was caught up in a xenophobic campaign to limit immigration. In February, Congress had instituted a literacy test bill to discriminate against non-English-speaking people from Eastern and Southern Europe. Something changed for Charlie during those final stages of shooting. He had tried to censor himself after the controversial cross-dressing debacle, but he was still getting criticized. This was the moment where Charlie said, fuck it. They're going to criticize me no matter what I say, so I might as well say what I want. He was many things. Moody, pretentious, self-indulgent, but he was not stupid. He knew what he was doing. And considering that he was a foreigner who had never applied for American citizenship, this choice was incredibly brave. When it was all over, Chaplin had shot around 780 takes for the immigrant. Over four days and four nights without sleeping, Chaplin cut the 40,000 feet of film down to 1,800. It would be four months before Chaplin's next film, The Adventurer, would be finished, the longest gap between Chaplin films up until this time. It was partially shot on location on the Sierra Madre coast. During filming, it was reported that Chaplin saved a drowning child who had been swept off a rock while watching the film shoot. I find this really funny because this might be one of the first examples of a classic Hollywood press tactic. Actor saves innocent bystander. Remember when Ryan Gosling was filmed stopping a fight in the Manhattan streets? Yeah. Okay. Charlie continued to expand upon the tension between rich and poor in his comedy with calculated awareness. In response to a scene in which he accidentally drops ice cream from a balcony landing on a rich woman below, he says, quote, The first laugh came at my embarrassment over my own predicament. The second, and the much greater one, came when the ice cream landed on the rich woman's neck. Simple as this trick seems, there were two real points of human nature involved with it. One was the delight the average person takes in seeing wealth and luxury and trouble. The other was the tendency of the human being to experience within himself the emotion he sees on the stage or screen. One of the things most quickly learned in theatrical work is that people as a whole get satisfaction from seeing the rich get the worst of things. The reason for this, of course, lies in the fact that nine-tenths of the people in the world are poor and secretly resent the wealth of the other tenth. If I had dropped the ice cream, for example, on a scrub woman's neck, instead of getting laughs, sympathy would have been aroused for the woman. Also, because the scrub woman has no dignity to lose, that point would not have been funny. Dropping ice cream down a rich woman's neck, however, is, in the minds of the audience, just getting the rich what they deserve. This is an incredibly self-aware assessment of his technique, and it really makes me think about the modern state of American film and television. 
so many of our stories are centered around the lives of the very rich. Is watching the hysterical tribulations of the Kardashians a reincarnation of Chaplin's thesis? Or have we abandoned the schadenfreude of Chaplin's comedy, either by choice or conditioning, and now find ourselves unable to laugh at the embarrassment of the rich without furthering their profits? And I also wonder if the current populist right-wing sentiment that all media is liberal is in some strange way a misguided byproduct of this overrepresentation of wealth on screen. If you have any thoughts about this, email me at behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I think it'd be really cool in the future if we could do some mailbag episodes. During this prolific output, Chaplin was driving himself into the ground. He began to suffer from insomnia, installing a dictaphone next to his bed so that he could always record a fleeting idea that he might have. He became more demanding at work. He no longer permitted employees to watch rehearsals, yelling at anyone who loitered too long. A strange cult-like mentality took hold of the studio. The studio's new publicist, Carlisle T. Robinson, would remember that upon arriving at Lone Star Studios, quote, One of the first things I discovered was that Chaplin was a very difficult person to meet, even within his own studio. I also learned that it was absolutely forbidden for strangers to penetrate into the studio. The star did not like journalists, did not at all wish to be bothered by old friends, even those who had known him in the English music halls. When he arrived for work, instantly everyone stopped what he was doing. Actors, stagehands, electricians, everybody stood in line at attention. Then Chaplin entered the studio gates, and the entire crew would yell, He's here! He was also struck by the jealousies, particularly among the men. During a screen test of The Immigrant, he remembers, quote, I had a curious impression when I entered the room. From the people scattered around the screening room, there emanated such an absence of friendliness that it verged on hostility. There were plenty of gripes to go around. Roly Tothero hated Sid. Quote, he was always suspicious someone was going to do something to Charlie. He'd tell him, don't hold your crew too long. Get rid of them before they know too much about you. Because Sid was crooked, he assumed everybody else was. And while I don't doubt the legitimacy of Tothero's opinion, I can't help but feel this is another clash of cultures. Growing up the way Sid and Charlie did would engender distrust and a certain presumption of crookedness in anyone. Adding to the stress was Chaplin's grueling work schedule and improvisational style. Think about it. Starting each film without a story or script essentially is like him jumping out of an airplane and constructing his parachute mid-flight, knowing that the entire world is watching him do it. Most wanting him to succeed, but also tickled at the thought he might crash and burn. And yet, it was this excitement that propelled him to even greater heights of popularity. A chaplain was no longer a fresh new fad. He had become a singular embodiment of the entire cultural zeitgeist. On May 6, 1916, actress Minnie Mattern Fisk published an article in Harper's Weekly entitled The Art of Charles Chaplin. Quote, it will surprise members of well-meaning Americans to learn that a constantly increasing body of cultured, artistic people are beginning to regard the young English buffoon Charles Chaplin as an extraordinary artist, as well as a comic genius. Apart from the qualified critics, many thoughtful persons are beginning to analyze the Chaplin performances with a serious desire to discover his secret for making irresistible entertainment out of more or less worthless material. They seek the elusive quality that leaves the lump of the usually pointless burlesques in which he takes part. The critic knows his secret. It is the old, familiar secret of inexhaustible imagination, 
governed by the unfailing precision of a perfect technique. And in a follow-up letter, she adds, quote, Charlie Chaplin's is a brave, dauntless philosophy, for no matter what vicissitudes he may have undergone, he squares his shoulders and walks bravely into the future, ignoring his past troubles. Surely he serves as a worthy cause who makes the world brighter and preaches optimism, and I am a unit of the vast multitude grateful for Charlie Chaplin. Shortly afterward, playwright Harvey O. Higgins in an article for The New Republic adds, quote, And he is a great lesson and encouragement to anyone who loves an art or practices it, for he is an example of how the best can be the most successful, and of how a real talent can triumph over the most appalling limitations put upon its expression, and of how the popular can recognize such a talent without the aid of the pundits of culture, and even in spite of their anathemas. As with all cultural phenomena, there was also strong pushback. Yale Magazine blamed Chaplin for the loss of male athleticism somehow. Quote, it is in the upper classes that the lapses begin to occur, and students equipped for serious competition for varsity teams are too often lured by that growing indoor sport, the motion picture show. We find them lingering with Mr. Chaplin and Easy Street. Church leaders declared him a moral menace, appealing only to the lowbrow humor of commoners. And yet Chaplinitis kept spreading. Throughout 1917, magazine writers complained that the popular costume balls of the day were ruined when the majority of men came dressed as Charlie Chaplin. In February of that year, a man dressed as Chaplin held up a bank in Cincinnati. On November 12, 1916, an unexplained and mysterious example of mass hysteria swept across the United States. On that day, over 800 hotels reported people calling and paging for Mr. Charles Chaplin, while in hundreds of small towns, people were waiting at train stations expecting Chaplin to disembark. An article from Memphis, Tennessee reported on little boys worshipping their newfound screen idol. Quote, their voices speak to Chaplin like he had for years been a companion in arms. It is interesting to hear the conversation carried on with Charlie at some of the suburban picture theaters. The boys called him and expressed their approval over certain things that he does and their disapproval of things that he does not do. They bid him good night, as though he was present in person. This whole thing was like an even more extreme version of when Heath Ledger's Joker appeared in 2008. I think there's actually some really fascinating parallels between the Joker, which continues to dominate popular culture to this day, and Chaplin's Tramp. Think about it. Both are anarchic clowns causing chaos for the elites of the world. They represent the alienated, dispossessed people of modernity. They both came to prominence during times of extreme global upheaval. Chaplin in the midst of World War I, as mass media in the form of film was taking over the world, and the Joker, from the Dark Knight at least, during the financial crisis, as social media was taking over the internet and society as we know it. Again, if you have any thoughts on this comparison, I'd love to hear them. Email me, behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. Now, in the midst of this unprecedented surge of popularity, imitators began to flourish. Even his old Carnot colleague Stan Laurel had a brief foray as a chaplain impersonator before teaming up with Oliver Hardy. Perhaps this is why, despite being roommates for over two years on tour, Chaplin completely omits Laurel from his autobiography. Comedian Harold Lloyd ripped off Chaplin with his character Lonesome Luke. He made over 60 shorts before criticism of his imitation forced him to change his costume. It was the right choice. 
Within a few years, he became a household name and multimillionaire. Others didn't give up so easily. There was the Russian-born Billy West, who impersonated Chaplin in 51 two-reelers of his own. His commitment to Chaplin was so thorough that he taught himself how to play the violin left-handed. There was also an old Carnot colleague, Billy Ritchie, who claimed that he was the originator of the Tramp character. Unfortunately, he teamed up with the director and former Chaplin nemesis Harry Lerman to make Chaplin imitation films. This partnership proved ill-fated when Ritchie was attacked and killed by an ostrich during filming. Suicide Lerman refused to provide royalties to Ritchie's widow and young daughter. Perhaps out of sympathy for him, or just hatred of Lerman, Chaplin hired his widow to work as a well-paid costumer at Chaplin Studios. Lerman! The Chaplin filed suit against a number of his imitators in what was a seminal case of modern motion picture copyright. Things were tense offset as well. During production of The Adventurer, Charlie's favorite antagonist, actor Eric Campbell, had one of the worst strings of bad luck I've ever heard. It began when his wife died. Then, while traveling to make funeral arrangements, he and his daughter were injured in a car accident. Less than three weeks later, Campbell met another woman named Pearl and after a five-day courtship, married her. Within two weeks, Pearl was suing him for a divorce, to which Campbell went out driving with two unknown women when his car collided with another vehicle at the corner of Wilshire and Vermont and he was killed instantly. He was 37 years old. At this time, Edna and Charlie began to drift apart. They had conducted their romance with the utmost discretion. But most likely, in response to his neglect and workaholic behavior, Edna had an affair with another man, an up-and-coming actor named Thomas Megan. When Charlie found out, the most fulfilling relationship of his early life came to an end. And although they continued to work together for many years, they would never again find the romance they once had. With the release of The Adventurer in October 1917, Chaplin had concluded his contract with Mutual. They ended amicably, with Mutual offering $1 million for eight more shorts, but Chaplin refused, wanting even more freedom for his process. Chaplin was back on the market, and the burgeoning film industry was at a crossroads. War has always been a driver of innovation, and over the previous three years, the film industry had undergone a revolution. The dirty little Nickelodeons were fast becoming grand cinemas filled with plush chairs and fine furnishings, and the ever-increasing profits were attracting bigger and bigger sharks. Adolf Zucker immigrated to the U.S. from Hungary the year before Chaplin was born. He was a fur trader who became rich by inventing a patent clip for fox furs. He entered the Nickelodeon business around the turn of the century. And in the early 1910s, he produced and distributed some of the first feature films through his Famous Players Film Company. Zucker was the first person to realize that the key to success in films were the stars, and he was on a mission to monopolize the market. He signed an agreement with the nation's leading distributor, Paramount, and then immediately ousted founder W.W. Hodkinson. He bought dozens of production companies, quickly firing his supposed partners, he signed megastars Mary Pickford and Fatty Arbuckle, among many others, then bought 135 theaters across the American South, turning Paramount into the first film conglomerate that controlled production, distribution, and exhibition, allowing him to charge huge rental rates for Paramount films in independent theaters. A group of exhibitors decided to fight Paramount and created an organization to buy, make, and distribute their own pictures. In April 1917, they created the first national exhibitor's circuit. All they needed was a superstar. 
I'll spare you the legal mumbo jumbo of the contract. Basically, Chaplin got $1.2 million to make eight two-reelers. He also got 50% of the box office and was to act as his own producer, spending his own money on production. Chaplin declared, quote, The day of sausage pictures is over. I shall never again bind myself to the making of two-reel comedies. You must have a story, and it's got to be a clear story. Otherwise, quite naturally, the public doesn't get it. Charlie bought a five-acre lot on the corner of Sunset Boulevard and La Brea Avenue in Los Angeles. There was a ten-room colonial-style home on the property, which became Sydney's residence. They designed the exterior-facing offices to look like a row of English cottages. Inside laid a beautiful campus filled with lawns, gardens, a swimming pool, and a state-of-the-art stage with a new diffusing system. And over a hundred years later, the studio still stands. Since 2000, it has served as the home of the Jim Henson Company. Since 2000, it has served as the home of the Jim Henson Company. But if you visit, you can still see a painted version of Charlie peeking out from one of the cottage doors. Chaplin was so proud. He wanted to share this vision of filmmaking with the world and decided to open the new studio to visitors. Almost immediately, two people were found hiding in the studio. They'd been there for days and had stolen set designs, character descriptions, and production notes. Thereafter, only pre-vetted members of the elite and intelligentsia were granted permission into the secretive studio. And this just breaks my heart, because it's one of those times where Chaplin is really trying to do the right thing, and he just gets burned for it. In January 1918, a mere three months after leaving Mutual, Chaplin began production on what French critic Louis Deluc would call cinema's first total work of art. Of course, I'm talking about A Dog's Life. As early as 1916, Charlie had been interested in the comic possibilities of a dog when he posted to it a local paper... Chaplin wants dog with lots of comedy sense. He had even auditioned a Dachshund, a Pomeranian, a Poodle, a Boston Bull Terrier, and an English Bulldog, but what he really wanted was a good old-fashioned mutt. Quote, What I want is a dog that can appreciate a bone and is hungry enough to be funny for its feed. <laughs> According to news reports, at the start of production, Chaplin went to the L.A. Pound and took 20 dogs back to the studio but after neighbors complained, he was forced to reduce the number to 12. Eventually, he settled on a little mongrel affectionately named Mutt. He rebuilt the T-shaped street from Easy Street and set to work. Only once did he have one of his fleeting fits of dissatisfaction. For two days, Chaplin decided to scrap the film for a new project called Wiggle and Son, for which he needed ant paste, salts, and half a dozen snails, for reasons we will never know. Fortunately, he changed his mind and returned to work on A Dog's Life. I won't go into the plot details here because this is one you should really just watch. But author David Robinson summarizes its magic. Quote, It is as fast-paced as a Carnot sketch. Its individual scenes cohere into a purposeful structure. At the same time, it has a harder core of reality than any film that Chaplin had made before. It is about street life, low life, poverty, and hunger prostitution, drug addiction, and exploitation. 
Without pretension and without sacrificing any of the comic verve, Chaplin drives home the parallel between the existence of a stray dog and two human unfortunates, Charlie the Tramp and Edna the Bar Singer. While he was still a copious reshooter, he was, quote, beginning to think of comedy in a structural sense and to become conscious of its architectural form. Each sequence implied the next sequence, all of them relating to the whole. Shooting was completed on March 22nd. Chaplin shot over 1,000 takes and 351,000 feet of film on each of his two cameras. Editing was completed on March 31st, just in time for Charlie to get on a train and head east to join Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford on a campaign to sell war bonds. As a bittersweet postscript, Mutt the Dog had grown so attached to Charlie that when he left, he refused to eat and eventually died. He was buried at the studio with the epitaph, Mutt, died April 29th, a broken heart. Chaplin had first been introduced to Douglas Fairbanks in 1916 by the social butterfly Constance Collier. Fairbanks was born in Colorado in 1883 to a broken home, and he was a natural actor. He had started doing local theater as a kid and eventually made it to Broadway in the early 1900s. After marrying the daughter of a wealthy industrialist, he moved to Los Angeles in 1915, where he worked with, you guessed it, D.W. Griffith. He was known for his athletic abilities and physique. He even released, and stop me if this sounds familiar to your modern ears, a self-help book titled Laugh and Live, Extolling the Power of Positive Thinking. It's just, God, people just repeat themselves over and over again. Chaplin wrote of Fairbanks, quote, The spirit of his pictures, their optimism and infallibility were very much the American taste and indeed the taste of the whole world. He generously praises other people's talent and was modest about his own. Fairbanks eventually signed with Paramount, where he met the biggest star in Hollywood, Mary Pickford. The two immediately started having an affair. Fairbanks and Chaplin had also developed a deep friendship. Chaplin would spend many days riding horses around Doug's Beverly Hills ranch. Fairbanks was the first movie star to live in Beverly Hills, which at the time was nothing more than an abandoned real estate development. Just before Charlie died... He said that Fairbanks had been the only really close friend he ever knew. In the spring of 1918, Charlie, Douglas, and Mary were now engaged on the third Liberty Bond campaign to raise money for the war effort. They were to make stops in Washington and New York before splitting up, Doug and Mary touring the north, while Charlie toured the south. It's unclear whether Charlie believed in the cause of war or if this was a PR stunt to stave off criticism back in Britain. Either way, he was incredibly nervous. He hadn't spoken on stage since his Carnot days. When they arrived in D.C., the three biggest stars in Hollywood were led into a football stadium filled with thousands of people. Once on stage, Chaplin quickly found his voice. He became so enthusiastic and carried away as he spoke to the crowd that he actually tripped and fell off the side of the stage, landing on the young assistant secretary of the Navy, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Next, the trio went to New York and spoke on the steps of the New York Stock Exchange to a crowd of 30,000 people. Chaplin made an impassioned plea for the American cause of defeating the Germans, but the crowd mostly went crazy when Fairbanks picked Chaplin up onto his shoulders. Really, look at the pictures of this event. It is hard to describe the sea of people packed into lower Manhattan. Whether he went into this endeavor as a believer in the cause or not, his mood quickly turned melodramatic. Quote, New York was depressing. The ogre of militarism was everywhere. There was no escape from it. 
America was cast into a matrix of obedience and every thought was secondary to the religion of war. The false buoyancy of military bands along the gloomy canyon of Madison Avenue was also depressing, as I heard from the 12th-story window of my hotel, crawling along their way to the battery to embark overseas. It's hard to say where this pacifist sentiment came from. Perhaps it was being passed around the circles of left-leaning intelligentsia in which Chaplin was now immersed. He would continue to profess this hatred of violence throughout his life, along with an increasing involvement in far-left politics. After a few stops across the South, Charlie returned to L.A. to find his exasperated studio manager quitting. No matter, Sidney had already found a replacement, the old manager of Chaplin's U.S. Carnot tours, Alf Reeves. Inspired by the Liberty Bond tour, Chaplin immediately set to work on a new controversial idea. After years of being labeled as a coward, the little tramp was going to war. Cecil B. DeMille warned Chaplin that the idea was too dangerous. He didn't listen. The film that would eventually be titled Shoulder Arms was originally designed to be in three acts. It would show the tramp at home, at the recruiting office, and then in the trenches of the Western Front. As usual, Charlie shot in sequence, but after a month, he decided to scrap everything he shot. The film uses one of Charlie's favorite devices from his old Carnot days, a dream. In the finished film, the tramp is a new soldier on the front. After struggling through basic training, he goes to sleep in his tent, where he dreams he is in the trenches, sent on a special mission to save a damsel in distress, and eventually capturing the Kaiser himself, only to wake back up in his tent. The film is filled with war-specific gags, such as when Charlie uses a passing sniper bullet to light a cigarette, or when he tries to sleep in his trench dugout only to have it fill with water, or when he disguises himself as a tree to get across no man's land, only to have a group of German soldiers set up camp and attempt to chop him down for firewood. It's also filled with deep pathos of war. In one scene, Charlie doesn't get any letters from home, so he reads over the shoulder of another private, pretending it was his own family writing to him. To this day, the trench sets in his film are some of the most realistic and well-researched you will ever see. Shoulder Arms premiered on October 20th, 1918. Three weeks later, the armistice was declared, and for the first time in four years, the guns fell silent on the Western Front. In the exuberance of the post-war celebration, the film became a box office smash. Veterans applauded it for its realistic sets and action. The press was blown away by Chaplin's tragicomic dexterity to poke fun at the absurdity of war. In many ways, the film was a culmination of everything he had done. Never before had people seen comedy and tragedy so perfectly balanced, nor had they been given permission to laugh at the unspeakable horror they had just lived through. But beneath the joyful cries of victory, people began to whisper. There was a rumor going around that the great Charlie Chaplin had impregnated and secretly married a 17-year-old actress named Mildred Harris. And cut. On the next episode, Chaplin's personal life becomes the source of public scandal as his professional ambitions turn to feature films and even greater artistic heights. Behind the Slate is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. If you like the episode that you heard today, please subscribe, rate, review, hit us with the five stars. It really helps us out. 
If you have any questions, comments, or you just want to say hi, please shoot me an email at behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. I would absolutely love to hear from you. You can follow me on Instagram at strandedonstage. And until next time, that's a wrap. To the golden bell.